It is worth 26, wait for it, quintillion dollars. List it. That's what I say. List the damn thing. <laughs> okay. You can honestly say that they don't want to walk around with a share of an asteroid. Mark, hi. Good morning. How are you? Well, you know, it's been a weekend of intense, worrying, heart-beating, heart-stopping <laughs> stuff on the sports field of the world. Yes. All of us late on a school night. Yes. And sitting there in trepidation <laughs> of various outcomes. Yes, yes. Oh, God. I mean, it really has been an extraordinary couple of weeks. Just to apologize for uh, missing out last week. This is the first time we missed out since we started the podcast right at the beginning of the year. The fault was entirely mine. I was sick, but I'm fine. I'm on the road and we are back. And it's been an extraordinary couple of weeks for a whole bunch of different reasons. The biggest and the saddest and the most depressing, it's almost indescribable in agony has been what has happened in Israel and the Gaza Strip. To me, the sort of takeaway, well, there's a million takeaways. To say that the situation is tragic is both inane and also accurate. To say that everybody is to blame is also inane and also accurate. To say that we as a world wish that there was a solution that could be found is both inane and accurate. Do you have any sense about what's happening in the Middle East in Palestine? It's above my pay grade and I don't have any locus standout to comment on the policies and ideologies of Israel and Palestine. What I do think that every human being has a right to comment on is the methodology deployed to, as it were, make one's point or fight for one's corner. And human beings have developed laws of war, such as the Geneva Convention and others, over forever, ever since we started fighting with one another. And those laws of war, once they are broken, take us into a space which is horrific, barbaric, and inhuman. Yeah. And so any terrorist attack doesn't warrant any reasonable analysis other than to condemn it as an inhuman behavior. And so the trouble with that is that if one side commits such an atrocity, the other side feels that revenge is appropriate at a similar level. And so I can only hope that we step back and gather again into a civilized place where these conflicts can be dealt with without transgressing human behavior. That's all I have to say on that. Yeah, yeah. It's terrible. No, no, no. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, you know, I think it's obvious to say that both the attack and the response are inhumane. You know, we're at a point in humanity where horror seems to be a method of war, not just a consequence of war. And that is a sort of quantifiable step downwards in the scale of humanity. And I mourn it. Yeah, we all do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as you say, you know, it's beyond these events taking place far from us. And we need to try and contribute positively. Yeah. You know, we need to try and find ways to be positive actors in this whole process. And being positive actors doesn't involve trying to inflame people's emotions further than they already are. Yeah. E even as understandable as that might be. Biden is going to Israel. There are attempts being made to try and have humanitarian corridors within Gaza. All of that is worth supporting, and I hope our government puts its weight behind those efforts. All right, so then the second sort of salient issue over the past week has been the rugby. My number of the week is quite obviously 29. <laughs> okay. It's an extraordinary thing that in the Rugby World Cup quarterfinals, the average score of all of the winners was 29. 
Okay, the scores were 28, 29, 29, and 30. Oh, that is so creepy. And so that was, not only <laughs> was that the average score, yeah. but that's the closest approximation I can get to the distance that Jason Colby had to run to block that conversion. Okay, 29 yards. So he did that in like four <laughs> seconds or less, which is about the run-up time. We had a World Cup quarterfinal characterized by a couple of events, that was certainly one of them. The other one was the biggest mistake that the French made was give Evan Etzebet a 10-minute rest charts, okay? Because oh, when yeah, he came yeah. Back no, on, no, I yeah, agree with you on this. He was a bit whoosh yeah. about that. Okay, <laughs> so it'll go down in history as an extraordinary battle. And our cricket guys are doing no less. They thrashed Australia, which always gives me a certain inner <laughs> pleasure. But yeah, these are all just numbers. You know what I've been curious about is the commentary on the census, which we've just had published and handed over to the president. And lies, damn statistics and lies are coming out again. So people pick and choose numbers, like the number of people that have been educated since 2011 or whenever it was, but without taking due reference to some base of comparison, you know, without taking reference to growth in population, to lowering of passing standards down to 30%, to all of those kinds of things, which negate the blunt statistic in its raw, uninformed, non-based way. If you ignore inflation, if you ignore GDP growth, then all of these relative performances look interesting, if not good, but they're not when you base them into some comparable index. So, I've been disappointed about how the census numbers have been, if you like, politically captured by those who choose to make messages out of them, which don't hold true or have no proper foundation. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I think the most obvious one was the increase in the number of people who have access to electricity. It's fantastic that 84% of the population now has access to electricity, right? But they don't have access to electricity all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody does that. Okay. Oh, you mean that kind of access? Why didn't you say so? You mean access all the time? Ach, man. They should rebase that to hours per day or something, times the population. Anyway, all of that stuff is what statistics have become infamous for, which is selective, you know, highlights. Cherry picking. But Tim, we're getting into a world of fake everything. I find that some of the statements by government officials, not only here, generally around the world, are delusional. It's as if by edict, they can say things are better, and they will be. Okay, and I didn't do that well at English at school. We speak in the present future, whatever that is. What's that tense when you're speaking in the present future? We are going to, and we are in the process of, and we are, what is that? The present continuous tense or some sort shit of uh, passive continuous here I yeah know. i think well that thing yeah <laughs> and that's how we speak but now fake has become purpose so in this last week or two since we last spoke the number of emergent doctors who aren't and phds you haven't got and comrades medal winners who didn't and you know you take that to its final step which is wealth that isn't earned and you start understanding the fragile shell under which these interactions are taking place. And I, for the life of me, can't understand why you would pretend to be someone that you aren't. Yes. Isn't that the most painful daily existence that you can imagine? Yes. No, exactly. I mean, this is the other sort of feature of our time is the fragility of truth. We don't have shades of truth anymore. Yeah. We have dimensions of truth. We have aspects of truth. Truth is such a fungible concept now, 
if human beings are going to give up on the idea of truth, then maybe we should just trust the machine. And in some ways we do already. It is incredible how we default to conclusions drawn in an automatic process yeah. rather than going through the sort of painful difficulty of making our own decisions. It's sad. You can't wake up every day and feel comfortable with pretense. You know, you, how long can you pretend to be a doctor for? You cannot become a doctor by a popular vote, okay? At some point, you run out of airtime to Google what you should do next. I don't know what you do, okay? What do you, someone comes in and they've got a herifritis or something, and you go, oh, yeah. Um, I mean, anyway, it is not only in that extreme sense where you pretend you've got some qualification, but when you put yourself, and this is such a consequence of cadre deployment, when you get put into a position that you're not competent to manage or to take charge of. Yes. It creates an uncertainty in that, which eventually translates into those people appointing even lesser competent people to preserve their status. And they eventually become autocratic and bullies and don't build things, they destroy things. And we are starting to see that manifest broadly across our state-owned enterprises and various other infrastructure initiatives that we have to face. Which kind of brings me on to what I'm going to write about this week, which is the state starting to ask the private sector for money. Right. Now, that's a subject I'd like to talk about a bit. What do you think? We now have a crisis in Transnet. ESCOM doesn't have a CEO. How you reposition an organization without a CEO, I don't know. I don't think it's possible. But now we have Transnet, which not only does not have a CEO, it does not have a CEO or an FD or the head of its largest and most important and most in crisis division. But yet there's still plans afoot to reorientate the organization and to have a comeback plan and uh, to involve the private sector and so on. Who's going to implement that? You can't plan something if you don't have somebody in place who, who buys into the plan and will take it forward step by step, right? Yeah, and I've just read somewhere that Transnet has now produced their new turnaround strategy number N. And against that background, they're looking to the private sector to contribute capital. But here's the deal I understand them to be offering. That if you provide money to their failing infrastructure for its maintenance and resurrection, you will get preferential services and rates. And you'll be able to transport your goods on that service. It's like me going into the bank, okay, and I'm saying, hi, guys, I'm desperate to borrow some money. Here are my terms. The bank goes, excuse me, uh, <laughs> we've got the money, okay? Sorry, sir, yeah, you're, in the wrong, you're in the wrong place. We got the money. We make the rules, okay? Right. And it's well overdue that the private sector capital gets invited in. Right. But it's our rules this time, buddy, Okay. And we have to arrive with conditional capital and says, we, yeah, we've got money and yeah, you need it. Now, these are our rules. And I'm going to write a bit about that because I think it's astonishing. If it was that you could walk up to your bank manager off the street and go, how's it? But listen, I want you to lend me a couple of million bucks. And the guy says, for what? He says, no, if you lend me the bucks, you'll be able to come visit me in the house that I'm going to buy. You'll have a special invite on Sunday. Wake up. In the real world. That's the bridge we haven't crossed yet. I can't wait for that. But it's another make-believe. The other aspect of this is that there, there is enormously quick to claim that this isn't privatization. Oh, yeah. So because privatization is a terrible thing. It would be an awful thing if there were private. But it's not privatization. What is it? 
It's the involvement of private capital. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's call it that if you want to. Here's the essence for me. <laughs> the ruling party doesn't fire insiders and doesn't invite in outsiders. If you're going to stay in your defined group with not invite, but you just want someone to give you money. And P.S., the private sector has been providing capital to the state since the beginning of time. We pay taxes. That's the provision of capital. On what track record would we provide more? Okay, so it's all very well. You get your bank manager to give you that initial unsecured loan, and then you squander it, steal it, hand it out to your mates, do whatever it is that you do. Then you go back in the year's time and say, now I want some real more capital. They're going to be, excuse me, can you explain and repay? And so we have to find some rules of engagement between capital and government. And it's long overdue, and I'm not scoffing at it. It's necessary, but can we leave our non-financial mindsets at the door and start talking turkey? What is the risk return? Who's in charge? Who's going to make this happen? Who's got the skill to build a dam? Who can fix water reticulation? Our dams have never been fuller, but our taps have never been emptier. Go figure. There's something in the middle that ain't working. One thing I thought about this whole transit turnaround plan, one of the stories mentioned that the systems that they have now are envisaging are rather like there's been one private sector use of a transnet rail line, which was agreed, which has been, it's done and dusted. The deal is done. Signed two years ago. Yeah. So obviously it's going, right? Turns out, uh, not so much. <laughs> because Transnet hasn't signed off on something that it was supposed to sign off on. And the one deal that actually has been technically agreed hasn't been implemented yet, is the modern terminology. And if we go broader where we must go, to foreign direct investment, to capital which has choice, we have to make this an investment destination that's attractive on a risk-adjusted basis. And the people who sit outside of our ecosystem, not affected personally by water or electricity or rising inflation costs, all of that kind of stuff, go, give me something to work with. Okay. Give me an investment proposition that is absent unusual tax systems, that's absent improper oversight that's absent corruption, and then give me the people that are going to look after my money and you can have some and it'll come in abundance. But we have to find that middle ground where capital will feel welcome. It's not there now. What's very illustrative of this to me is just the number of stocks on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. There's a real crisis going on. They've halved, haven't they, from the heights? It's halved. The number of listed stocks is halved, which means that the people who have control of discretionary capital are finding value, but not here. They are finding right. value in America, Turkey, Indonesia. Those are the measures that we should be concentrating on, not the measures that we construct ourselves, that we use to judge ourselves. The measures that other people who have a choice in the matter, their decisions are the ones that are the crucial ones to watch. One could argue even that the notion of a stock exchange such as ours currently is regulated and used is a little bit out of date. If you start looking at the liquidity percentage of any particular counter and you say AI could generate the trades and that's an indicative value of the company, I'm not sure that hypothesis still holds true. So people are going private. Even if they're not leaving South Africa, they're going, let's manage this thing 
with reference to proper capital constructs and valuation metrics, and we will forsake this public tradability and the option, juicy option schemes that we might be able to construct around it for an investment in the truth between the true owners of capital. And that's, I think, what's driving it. You're seeing less and less deals being done because people have abused the market price. Steinhoff is a classical case where market price, which was driven up by deal upon deal, where essentially the shares were used as a non-fair value currency, have put the whole system in question. Anyway, have you got a number, Tim, because you're running out of time yet? What? I do. And, and it's very relevant because it's about out of space. Wow. You always get that. To, is that because yeah, of I know, the, I know. Is that what people do down there at Prince Albert? <laughs> and they're all a bit out of space there, right? Yeah. No, we're very focused on the stars down here. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So the, the question is, you know that they've discovered this asteroid, which is basically an absolutely enormous lump of iron ore, right? Heading uh, towards us. No, it's not. So the, 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 yeah. so the question is, which asteroid is worth the most and what is it worth? Okay, now this is going to blow your mind, but somebody's actually done a calculation of this, please. I don't know whether this is right or not. But anyway, by far and away, the most valuable asteroid is Davida and it is worth 26, wait for it, quintillion dollars. List it. That's what I say. List the damn thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Get it. But I mean, who, can, who can honestly say that they don't want to walk around <laughs> with a share of an asteroid? Any cocktail dinner discussion yeah, no, exactly. stands aside for that. <laughs> it does make the whole idea of investment in outer space. When you think about, ah, oh, this is all theoretical. And then somebody mentions to you 26.99 quintillion US dollars. Well, <laughs> that changes the perspective in that case. Well, in that case, I'm a sinner. Okay. <laughs> Question is, who owns the asteroid? Well, presumably, the person who owns the asteroid is the person who can get there fastest and can actually start mining, uh, transporting the, the iron ore back to planet Earth. Hopefully it falls under the definition mineral rights. And one day you're sitting there on your farm in the career, and next minute this asteroid worth gazillions lands there and you become a miner. <laughs> Tim, I think that's a wrap for this week, my friend. Good, good. Uh, nice to have you back. The clouds are missing you, man. Cool, cool. Look after yourself. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. The biggest pod network on the continent. For sales inquiries, please contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.